Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to reflect, debate, and have a bit of a schmooze. This week, I'm delighted to welcome the TV presenter, criminal barrister, and Jewish Chronicle columnist, Rob Rinder. Shooting to fame in 2014 as Judge Rinder, and coming fifth in Strictly Come Dancing two years later, he's since become known as one of the most interesting Jewish voices in popular culture today, presenting several documentaries on Israel and the Holocaust. He's also about to publish his first novel, which is a whodunit called The Trial, coming out in June, with, of course, a Jewish protagonist. In a recent Jewish Chronicle column, he wrote, We all too often tell the story of our rich Jewish life through the prism of Oy Vey. We must never forget to include the oh yay as well. Welcome and let's talk. Thanks for having me. We decided to call this episode Rob Rinder's Reasons to be Happy because the golden thread that runs through the columns that you write for us is this lovely sense of optimism and hope and positivity. So it seems to me that optimism's really core to who you are. Despite you know, the sense that I think we all share as Jews, a sort of an echo of the past that is described as they tried to destroy us, they failed, let's eat. That without our optimism, without our faith, and without our hatikvah, the, the music of the Jewish state, um, we couldn't have continued. Hope is at the core of everything. At the heart of that is, is, is simcha, celebration. And your, your column is called Only on Simchas, which is a wonderful name for it. In your TV documentaries, you have explored the darkest of themes, um, particularly the Holocaust, which has cast a shadow over your own family, um, particularly your grandfather's generation. And, you know, when you talk about remaining hopeful in the face of such trauma, it's more than self-help. It's something that's really profound, isn't it? I can't rid myself of it. The reason for that, you know, is both complex and straightforward. Um, the straightforward element of it is that if you've been around the survivors and seen them in the presence of Simcha, seen them at a buffet table, seen them in the presence of life of their children, 
It's a strange and most curious thing because it feels so emotionally counterintuitive. Then, you know, people who have touched such trauma and suffering that it is truly, in every conceivable sense, indescribable. And yet, if you see that round into a buffet table in the presence of abundance, the only time I remember my grandfather in full throatal delight was singing at my bar mitzvah, taking the microphone, that almost to have experienced such darkness, only then can you really understand in the truest, most spiritual, most deep sense how the light feels. And in a complex way, the perhaps not complex actually, it's sewn, as you described, into the tapestry of our traditions across the spectrum of Jewish experience. You know, what does it say about us that uh, there are prescriptions for mourning if you lose a close, close relative, unless you've booked a simcha? That we who have experienced so much understand that there is a positive edict for delight to head forwards into joy and to hope. You know, a festival, Purim, for example, where um, one of the expressions is, you're supposed to get so drunk that you can't discern between a summer kind of final men. I mean, when you tell people that story, you know, it's such a celebration of Judaism. And you can't understand fully the complexity, the depth of loss, unless you've understood the depth and complexity of delight and joy. I was recently in Birkenau with Louisa Clare, and uh, the room that um, we were in that didn't affect me most. It's impossible to describe. There's no words for that place, as I've written, and um, you have to stand on the earth to fully imbibe it. But the room that Yad Vashem have curated of this Jewish life before, full of parties and beaches and families and lived experience that you can't fully fathom what's outside on that earth in Birkenau and its impact and its implication without also seeing the joy and the delight. And the only on Simcha's thing is what, what we say to each other, right? Even in death, isn't that a thing? That we should live in enduring hope? And it's the most ultimate poetic middle finger to the rest of the world. Despite everything, even in death, even in challenge, only on Simcha's. It's beautiful. In fact, you, you, in one of your columns, you described that mentality of that sort of bloody-minded, we are going to survive, that Dafka, contrarian spirit. You know, it's something that's, that's, as you say, it's cultural and it's profound and it's thousands of years old and it's, it's defiant and it's celebratory and it's wonderful, but it's also Dafka. It's a whole Jewish impulse. I talked a little bit about this sort of thing. I, I, I'm always nervous around um, you know people in the public said that describe themselves as being culturally Jewish. I think to myself, well, what does that mean? The outside world doesn't uh, discern in that sort of way. What, what, why does that exist? I understand you may not necessarily have a prescriptive faith, let's say, but what does cultural Judaism mean? It's, in, it's something you have. It's, uh, the world will project that onto you. And part of that experience that is in our history, not necess- not just because of the Shoah, not just because of pogroms, but reaching into our ancient past is that we come out of the land of Egypt together and look at our origin story. In every facet of um, our religious expression, however you express it across the spectrum of Jewish life today and wherever you are in the world, one of the things about those narratives from you know Moses, and our other characters that inform Jewish life and practice, is that it's an enduring conversation with God. 
it's there are moments of darker, right? I mean, I don't want to get all rabbinical, but I'm fascinated by this. You know, what other faith starts with a negotiation? You know, there's Abraham as God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, look, I'm going to destroy this. Now, hang on a second. Let me just see whether I can find a hundred people. You know, Moses goes up to God and says, well, hang on a second. That we are constantly involved in these conversations, this dovker. What I mean by that is this sort of idea that the world may prescribe a narrative onto you, but you have the rich gift, let's say, of being able to reclaim the pen. And that matters as Jewish people. And what you're describing is a, is a tradition and a culture that's millennia old, but that history is really a chain of generations of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, you know, year after year and generation after generation. So going back to your early life and your childhood, you've got survivors in your family have had. You must have some vivid memories with them that have helped to instill all of this to make it a living tradition in you and in your attitude to life. Yeah, uh, of course. My grandfather being a survivor was a you know seminal presence in my childhood and has gone on suddenly as I learned more about his life. I, I've now subsequently, retrospectively, let's say, understood how important his experience of being a survivor has and how it's informed my perspective on the world, politically, how I judge the world, everything I sort of think about politics and community. But before we even get there, Jewish life was at the epicenter of my childhood too. Too easy just to simplify it into, you know, you have a, the, the, the gift, the dark gift of a survivor in your midst. And so consequently, that becomes a dominant narrative. That's true. But also when I was growing up in Southgate Shore, Southgate Cock Fosters, you know, we were shamish about itch. You know, we didn't drive and we, you know, didn't ride but did the odds thing. You know, there were no shovels clocked, but certainly Kashrut was strictly kept. And my mom still now does, you know, uh, certainly in the Pesach. Um, it was absolutely part of the grammar of the year, let's say, that you do those days of Simchat Torah and you know, my grandfather was um, Havran uh, Bereshit, I think. can't remember. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. So the synagogue, the shul, Jewish youth club, there wasn't Jewish schools, you must remember. That wasn't really part. There were people who went to JFS, but where I live, um, and this is we're going to go to Hasmonee, where I think you went, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, you know, most people went to the local state school, as I did, with blended Jewish communities amongst other first-generation communities. Same secondary school. So Jewish youth club, synagogue, Jewish community was absolutely kind of the epicenter of my social life um, for most of my life. And my, so my Jewish identity was completely present, seminal in terms of the year, in terms of diet, in terms of, you know, the cultural experience too, in terms of values and what mattered and who was important and reputation, all of the things that go into, you know, the experience of what it means to grow up as being Jewish in North London as part of a um, religious, cultural and well, a community. And on top of that, as part of that, there was this other dimension, which was my grandfather, mm. who I knew was a survivor. But as I've described before, and it's true in nearly all cases of the survivors, there was never a moment when you sat down and he described his experience. It was understood through the presence of kind of loud whispers what he'd been through. There was never a moment where I didn't know he'd been a survivor. Mm. But, you know, in the way that kids learn language, 
kids have a facility for it, but they are aware from the earliest understandings of the social environment they're in that there are certain doors that are locked and questions that you don't ask. It exists like a dark jigsaw with people filling bits and pieces in. But as a grandson, my brother and I um, and my cousins were perhaps the beneficiaries of him even more in terms of his openness to tell us things from time to time. And so there were these moments that a story would just emerge and it would be a story about the Shoah, which I understood. Can you recall any of those stories now? I, I can't remember especially what had made him share this particular moment. He had um, arrived at Sheba, and I didn't know that was a camp. A lot of the information I have now, of course, I've subsequently put together through the beneficiary of doing the work I do in documentary. But I, he said, you know, he realized that um, one of the jobs in this line that he pushed into was going to be inside, and they were inviting cold indescribable, bone-aching cold, which again, I, I couldn't have fathomed until I stood on that earth in the winter relatively recently. And so he pushed himself into that line because he saw that he had a greater chance to survive because it looked like the job was indoors. He'd been spotted by um, a German guard and beaten, and the scars were still on his back. And he had a scar on his face that he never explained, but nevertheless, it was present, you know, like a sort of a dark kind of physical memory that you could see and then eventually it would disappear, but it was impossible to unsee. Anyway, he ended up being pushed into the most difficult work line. And the long and short of this grim story was that the people in the easy job found themselves working with chemicals without protective gear, so consequently had a life expectancy of three months, let's say. And although he was doing bone-crushing, back-breaking work, he survived. So it was almost kind of him telling us, reminding us, you know, understand what you're getting into before you make your choice. I think most people who get lessons from their grandfather and bits of advice don't have them rooted in, in the memory of a concentration camp. That's quite a big thing to take on young shoulders and, and it must be quite character forming for you. Yeah, but that, that, that's absolutely true. But there are rich lessons and come back to the beginning. But imagine knowing that somebody had four sisters murdered and you had a brother and his parents. I knew that much. But imagine seeing that person and knowing stories about him and touching a face of somebody that was completely sort of non-judgmental about other people with this peculiar sense of eccentricity and humour and this kind of driving passion to keep his Judaism. I couldn't tell you anything particular about his faith, but I could tell you about his commitment to kashrut and being a kosher caterer and Timka and his, what I mean, there's a story that my mom tells about meeting Germans and him talking about his life to them. And, you know, at the heart of everything, what made him most happy was Simchat. It's, it's not by happenstance that that's what he ultimately chose to cater, wedding, bar mitzvahs, baking cakes. That makes him sound like a terribly benign figure, which I don't think he was. It's not that as much as, yes, you understand that as you describe, you know, a lesson to be taught through the most dark prison imaginable, but also imagine somebody imprinting on you the capacity for that much resilience, that much ability to be dovka, and that much ability to go in with the, into the world and continue, regardless of whatever the world throws at you. That's also a gift of having a survivor for a grandparent. And now a quick word about our sponsor, the Athena Advisors. They are a global consulting firm driven by a belief in social justice, helping charities and NGOs to repair the world through excellence in fundraising. 
boards of trustees, executive teams, and philanthropists turn to the Athena Advisors to help them develop their capabilities, systems, and skills for more effective fundraising. With hubs in London and Washington, and a diverse team of professionals on four continents, they help organizations ramp up their impact and reach. To find out more about how the Athena Advisors drive organizational performance for good, visit theathenaadvisors.com. And if we're thinking about resilience and the ability to be Dovka and to survive, um, and if we're thinking about reasons to be happy, this brings us on neatly, I think, to the state of Israel, which is in a, a difficult position, has been in a difficult position this past year internally. Israel, for you, is that a reason to be to be happy and to be joyful? I've never been more proud. See how quickly I can answer that question. I've never been more proud of Israel than in the last few months in all of its protestations and its turbulence and what it's demonstrated as a place into the world. And, you know, I'll share this with you. And I, I don't think I have anywhere else. But, um, you know, I made a program in, in Israel and I was in Tel Aviv and I had the most fantastic weekend. Um, you know, it's the greatest city right now on the planet. It's happening. The most avant-garde art I've ever seen. And by avant-garde, I don't mean nonsense. I mean the real stuff, you know, real stuff of substance. You know, restaurants that you'd queue for for hours and, uh, you know, this full plurality, this this apotheosis, this explosion of Western liberal democracy writ large in all of its delightful freedom surrounded in this twinkling beauty, especially in the sunshine, you know, including the people who must be the most beautiful collection of humankind in any one concentrated place on the planet, so apart from the price of the hotels, you know, it's almost perfect. But I remember being on the plane and writing to the director and think, saying to myself, you know, I feel a dark echo. I feel really afraid. Because I'd spent time outside uh, the bubble, the boer of Tel Aviv. And it struck me that this well-run city, more than London, more than anywhere else on the planet, had created this alternative identity to the rest of Israel. That it had evolved into a place where it had effectively checked out it had become a province of a bigger mission of a country that had sort of forgotten. They were Tel Avivians. It was always sort of forming its own identity. There were parties to be had. There was a city to run in a way that was going to be curated by these forces that had almost, you can say like Brexit, sort of disappeared itself, cut itself off from the others that troubled themselves with the politics of Israel because they were Tel Avivians and therefore it didn't necessarily, politics didn't apply to them. So that shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes, whatever was going on in uh, Jerusalem or the Knesset. And they may or may not be politically engaged, but who cares when you've got Weimar to be in? And that's the echo that it felt like. They're checked out. And it felt like a really dark portent. And I felt to myself, do you know what? If this continues, um, this level of disengagement or of indifference or of a focus on the city that's wholly detached from the central meaning, the force, the ruach, the purpose of the state of Israel, this place is in real trouble because democracy is under threat whilst those people are not engaged. And so the long-winded throat clearing to say, look what's happened, and I'm so excited about it. You want to understand the neshama, the soul of Israel, right? It doesn't matter about the political complexion of who you are, whether you're a Likudist or a person of the Labour Party. The fact that at its fundamental core is a belief in democracy under the rule of law, 
a sacred force that was a creation that's absolutely non-negotiable at its roots, at its identity, at its inception, at its mission, and that just overstepping that is so culturally intolerable by the vast majority of people. Echoes of when the Daily Mail wrote judges being enemies of the people, by and large, people thought that was a step too far, that there's something innate that all of a sudden ignited the Jewish population across the political spectrum to say that however we may disagree with one another, we have a fundamental shared purpose, and that's democracy under the rule of law. And you want to restructure bits of the constitution, you jolly well better do that in a way that is lawful. And I feel really proud of how Israel has responded, especially the young people, especially how it's ignited, re-engaged the political forces in Tel Aviv and demonstrated to the world that democracy under the rule is not up for capture. You know, and I, 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 I feel that that's, you know, talk about reasons for Simcha and to be optimistic. I think that's one. It's been quite fascinating to see the demonstrations because, you know, the Jewish Chronicle, we see pictures coming in quite a lot from Israel of, of, of current affairs. And sometimes when you have pictures of the demonstrations for and against, as it were, the Bibi supporters and the Bibi opponents, it's quite hard to tell them apart at first because they're all flying the Israeli flag. And that's fascinating. It shows what you're saying, I think. Yeah, but even before that, so, so yes, pro or for Bibi maybe, but, but actually there was consensus, let's not forget. There was consensus he overstepped the mark. And that's not a small thing. What did he try and do? He tried to usurp the constitution. Now, that's not an anti-Lakudist point of view or necessarily a statement, but it is one, against Bibi. But who were the person that said no? I think not. His own political party. What other country in the world would the embassies around the world refuse to work because they were concerned, that's putting it euphemistically, that the political leadership were doing violence to the fundamental essence of the country? There, there, there wasn't, you know, there was very few pro-BB politicians who came out in favour of what he attempted to do by usurping the functions of the court and of the judiciary in the way that he did. Now, moving forward about what he wants to do, that's a whole other story. But what I'm talking about is the consensus that there was, that in, in the core, in the character of the Jews of Israel and Jewish citizens and citizens across the board in Israel, that there's a sacrosanct force that's not up for grabs. And how have you found interacting with the, the world at large outside the Jewish community in this regard? Because you, you and I can have a sophisticated conversation about, about Israel and about Judaism and about our inheritance and about culture and so forth. But most of the time, uh, you must spend interacting with people who are not Jewish. Um, and yet you're one of the most sort of out and proud Jewish figures mm. um, and pro-Israel figures that there is in, in, in popular culture. Do you encounter um, difficulties in that regard? Uh, by and large, not. I, I had such a, um, it's been such a gift for some reason, partly because I guess of the job that I do. And so maybe people think I could send them to prison. I don't know. But also it's gendered as well. I think Rachel Riley and I might um, post the same tweet, let's say, and get a different outcome. But I found people um, by and large really willing to engage and talk about Israel, let's say. And, um, you know, in, in the documentary, The Holy Land that, that I made, I had a lot of criticism from the Jewish community, a lot of it fair, a lot of it private, fully prepared for that. By and large, you know, people meet me with a degree of respect and I guess kavod. Like, so 
Speaking outside of the Jewish community, what I've discovered by and large is most people, if they have an opinion about Israel at all, it will usually be quite uninformed. Often it will have been curated through the presence of social media, through a news feed that will be heavily biased. What I've learned as well is that I'm not going to change that narrative by um, deploying facts or history on its own. That's not a helpful or a useful way to be a good advocate for Israel. Because inevitably what they're saying sometimes can strike at the core of my identity, which makes becoming good and effective um, speaker uh, almost impossible. And that's true of people who hold deep, let's say, uh, seated anti-Jewish and anti-Israel views. It sits in the hemisphere of the brain where emotion is and not logic. You could talk all you like about um, the origins of the state and the Balfour Declaration and UN's uh, creation of two states alongside one another. You can talk about all you like about the corruption at the heart and core of Hamas and, of course, and Fatah and um, the various injustices that take place. None of that will touch the side. What's helpful is to do three things. You have to do, you know, the first words of the only prayer, well, regardless of your Jewish understanding or um, religious devotion, that anybody knows the Shemites are out here, right? That's the edict. So you have to hear what the other people have to say. You can't do that when you're triggered into anger. However, let's say imperfect that documentary is, you have to hear what people have to say. Secondly, there are facts. Ultimately, this was a creation under international law. There are facts. Again, that doesn't touch the size. But let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what Morgan David Adam did last week. Let me tell you about the scientific breakthroughs shared with the world in respect. Let me tell you about the plurality of the communities in Tel Aviv. Let me tell you about the ex-Prime Minister sent to prison under the rule of law by an Israeli Arab Supreme Court judge. All of these rich examples are what changes the conversation and enables people quietly and carefully to at least understand, in part, the experience we have as Jews and the purpose of that state being where it is, its mission and its enduring purpose. And have you faced any anti-Semitism personally in your career, in your, in your life? You know, I keep getting answers, and I, I haven't, actually, I think. I mean, I've seen it. I used to represent the National Front. You used to represent the National Front? Yes, I mean, I wasn't, you know, exactly on a retainer by them, but um, it was, um, I was a criminal barrister, and you had to represent people without fear or favour. Then that was the rule. That's the nature of it. And I heard, certainly within the earshot, um, anti-Semitic tropes and things being said. On one occasion, I was thanked because, um, you know, this particular client was glad that I wasn't a, I'll use the word, a yid or a queer. And I had to resist every facet of my being not to do jazz hands and say, oi vey. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, that's why I go on about Simca and why about oi vey, not oi and why it matters so much to be in the presence of joy, is that this state of ours, this faith of ours, this, in all of its expressions in all of its festivals, in its state, in its buildings, in its parties, in its families, is full of simcha. The people who espouse hate, who are gripped by this idea of violence, who hold on to conspiracy theories, who, you know, these are seas of misery, whose life lives are um, darkness of human debris, which is a very poetic way of saying they're not happy humans. No. Anybody that's got residual energy in their debt to write something anti-Jewish, anti-racist, is going to commit their life to that. We don't know anyone. I don't have a friend. You don't. 
Anybody listening to this doesn't. So who are they? With residual capital, let's say. This is a deeply distressed, dark, angry person. And what better Delfka again is there to say no Christ? Well, we're beginning to run out of time, Rob. So just before we go, I think readers would like to know what's coming next. I've heard that there's some amazing hotels coming up in your future quite soon. Uh, what else have you got to look forward to? Well, amazing hotels. I mean, when talk about Jewish, it's so fun. Five of those is so Jewish. Only this could happen, right? You know, one of the things that really surprises people, which I always think you should talk to your non-Jewish friends about, you know, because... I wonder who's listening to this. You know, often it's in cities and stuff. When you tell people how many Jews there are in the UK, it doesn't matter how liberal they are. They always overstate it. Two million people. We tell them it's less than 300,000. The surprise. I mean, you have to persuade them of this. That being said, at four of these hotels, it's amazing. I've just taken over very recently from Charles Corrin, who was too busy to do this thing. It was a real gift. It's the best job in television. And at four of these hotels, one of them, and I can't tell you where we were, but we're in a beautiful island so-called paradise and i'm standing there as i'm talking to this naturalist about to go scuba diving and we're going to replant the coral reef and this golf cart comes along and someone's got robert yes i was at your bar mitzvah <laughs> hotel number two same crew posh hotel right with a very very famous owner right i'm about to sit down and interview this extremely famous owner and when this man comes over pushes said extremely famous owner of this hotel out the way and said i'd just like to say I saw you at the Norwood do. <laughs> welcome to, you know, welcome to. The crew are like, do you know everyone? And that just happened again. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in work. So I'm doing that. Um, I'm do- Did it make the cut? I'm hoping it's going to make the cut. Uh, I used to use Yiddish a lot in um, Judge Rinder, and um, it never used to make the cut. Apart from on one occasion, I was away and they had the signer. I, I got an urgent message from the producer. Could they explain what this was? And anyway, I got the click and they sent it to me uh, on WhatsApp. And I said to some woman, look, She's telling me this whole story about where she's from. I said, Madam, I don't care where you're from. It could be other guts. And so the signer wanted to understand how to create a sign for other guts, which, anyway, <laughs> the creation of my ground. So doing that, I'm doing a series um, which is really exciting about art, um, taking a very famous person on the grand tour. Um, I'm making a history of prisons. Um, and I'm also doing a really exciting history documentary uh, as well for Channel 4, which is. Um, and then more, more presenting a breakfast television. Watch this space. And the book, of course. It's the only time I was worried that my mum might be concerned about something I can do. I'm blessed with the Jewish mother that genuinely thinks everything I do is marvellous. But because there's a mum in it, which is nothing like my mum, I hasten to add. You know, she's constantly breaking into his house and filling his fridge and um, introducing him to daughter, like friends of people on the Ladies Guild in the show. But anyway, read the book and watch this space. Nothing like anyone's Jewish mother, I'm no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. And finally, Rob, we, we'd like to finish off by uh, asking our guests if they have a kvetch of the week. Has something been getting up your nose this week? Something you'd like to kvetch about before we go? I know it slightly cuts across the idea of being happy, but... Jews are constantly kvetch. Like, it's impossible to divorce kvetching. I always say this, like, um, it's such an interesting thing. If you want to understand the essence of being Jewish in some way, you know, the Eskimos or, you know, the native people of northern Canada have loads of different words for snow. What does it say about us as Jewish people that in Yiddish we have all of these words to explain our mental neuroses, you know? Sidraikar, Meshigana. <laughs> the number of times I'd want to be in court when I was doing the youth court and say to the bench, I know he burnt out of school, but he's not a bad boy, he's just a robber. <laughs> it's sort of this in, like universe of stuff that we all just understand. Do I have a kvetch? What can I say? People who swim in my lane. That's it. Get out like I've, I've hurt my back. The only exercise I can do is swimming at the moment. 
there's always someone in my swimming lane. It's enough for, and there's no polite way to say, get out of my swimming lane because they're there for exercise too. Yeah, that's what I've got. I've got to say, that's, that's a pretty benign kvetch, Rob, and testaments to how optimistic and wonderful you are. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, thank you very much, Rob Rinder. It's been a joy. Lots of love. You've been listening to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors and presented by me, Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. If you've enjoyed it, why not subscribe so you don't miss an episode? You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.